we will have a national emergency, and we will then be sued, and they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit, uh, even though it shouldn't be there, and we will possibly get a bad ruling, and then we'll get another bad ruling, and then we'll end up in the Supreme Court, and hopefully we'll get a fair shake, and we'll win in the Supreme Court, just like the ban. They sued us in the Ninth Circuit, and we lost, and then we lost in the appellate division, and then we went to the Supreme Court, and we won. More than a dozen states are suing the administration for trying to divert funds to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. The beauty of the Constitution, the heart and the soul of the Constitution, is a separation of power with co-equal branches of government to be a balance of power. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. My guest today is Dahlia Lithwick. She's the author of a forthcoming book on women of the Supreme Court and the host of Slate's Amicus. While she is an Amicus Curiae friend of the court, I like to think of myself as an Amicus Dahlia, friend of Dahlia, whom I've known and worked with for some 20 years, and a recommendation to you, get a friend with a galaxy legal mind like Dahlia. She won't get you out of a parking ticket, but I bet if I was undertaking a violation of the Logan Act, as Mike Flynn did, or a violent attack on the Constitution of the United States, she'd defend me. No, wait, she'd prosecute me. Dahlia doesn't mess around. One last P.S. before I get to Dahlia. The evil jester Roger Stone, who's facing criminal charges for everything, posted to Instagram a picture of Judge Amy Berman Jackson, the judge in his case, with crosshairs on her head. Get it? Like, I will kill you. The caption with the photo alluded to machinations by the boogeyman deep state. This was seen as a mutilation of justice, so he apologized. He also decided to pretend it was not gun sights in the picture, but a Celtic cross with the photo of Judge Jackson, who's not a Celt. Stone isn't either. Also, the Celtic cross is a notorious symbol of white supremacy, so Stone, following his sicko running buddy Paul Manafort, is out of the frying pan and into the fire. Oh, I hope his Nixon back tattoo doesn't get too singed. Joining me in the studio is Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia, welcome to Trumpcast. Hi. Okay, so we're going to talk about John Roberts. When you spoke to Justice Elena Kagan recently at our children's school, which was a brilliant Q&A you did with her, I took, because I tend to be an optimist, from Justice Kagan a small glimmering of hope that Roberts might tame or slow walk the stuff that would give the Trump appointees, that's Neil Gorsuch and that guy with the the sexual assailant, Ket Bravenaugh. Bart, I think it's Bart from Bart. his yearbooks, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. I thought he might, from what she said, somehow chip off little pieces of the cases to be decided or otherwise do something to stop the potential catastrophe to the Constitution represented by having a Republican operative and a very Republican-aligned partisan in Gorsuch. But you say it's not time to pretend that John Roberts is a liberal now. I think that maybe it helps to sort the entire world of John Roberts' theory yes, <laughs> into two very separate axes, if okay. we could. I like it. I think one piece of this is... Did John Roberts wake up this morning and decide that he's Mm pro-choice? Did he decide that the entire sort of 60s racial justice project from the Supreme Court is a good idea? Did he revisit his vote in Shelby, catastrophic vote in Shelby County, gutting the Voting Rights Act? None of those things are true. So when we say, has John Roberts become a moderate, I think it's really important to say if John Roberts were an associate justice of the Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. were he not helming this court, I don't think any of his views on any of those issues would be in play. So that's, right, one bucket. Then there's another, which is how does John Roberts, institutionalist first and foremost— Chief Justice tasked with, and I think he takes this very seriously, he talks about, you know, being in the footsteps of William Rehnquist, of John Marshall. He sees himself in a line of chief justices whose principal job, beyond just being one of nine votes, 
is protecting the authority, the dignity, the integrity of the judicial branch. Yeah. Not just the Supreme Court. Yeah. All of it. He takes that extremely seriously. Yeah. And so I think it's really useful to triangulate not against the John Roberts on his own doctrine, what he thinks when he's flossing in the morning about abortion. Yeah. I think it's useful to think, and this is, I think, what Elena Kagan was driving at in that Q&A, when John Roberts, the institutionalist, is contending with, for instance, Donald Trump saying there are Obama judges and Trump judges and the Obama judges are the devil. Well, he doesn't respond as, you know, John Roberts who flosses. He responds as the institutionalist whose institution is under attack. Mm -hmm. So I think what we've seen in the last couple of weeks where he has voted now twice with the liberals, mm -hmm. once on this Louisiana abortion case, again in a case that had to do with whether an intellectually disabled man could be put to death. And in both cases, mm -hmm. John Roberts flips and votes with the liberal wing of the court. And I guess I just want to say he doesn't do that because he's changed his mind mm. on abortion or on mm -hmm. executing and the standards for mental competency. He does that because in both cases, lower courts completely disregarded a Supreme Court decision. Ah. And so what he's not going to put up with is lower courts overruling the Supreme Court from below, yeah. pretending like, woohoo, we got this fifth guy, Kavanaugh, and we're off. Yeah. No precedent counts for anything. That is not going to be okay with him. So I think that's the frame that you have to look at this through. And I think going forward as we talk about the, you know, the, the challenges to Donald Trump's declaration of emergencies, almost the question you want to ask is which John Roberts is going to show up. Yeah. The John Roberts who signed off on the travel ban, who wrote the majority opinion in that case, yeah. who was thinking about his own views of executive power, or yeah. the John Roberts who is worried, to say the least, about a president who keeps taking wax at the integrity of the courts. That's very important to know. And I think we've all wondered, well, first, Trump over and over again has put the people around him, just simple professionals around him, in moral quandaries. Like the closest one is some kind of Michael Cohen type who just becomes completely without a compass. And then the McCabe's and the James Comey's and the Preet Bharara's, it just falls into a, their laps to Sally Yates to stand up in ways that they're not trained to do. They're trained to work in a system that works. And then you have Roberts, and it's a little bit radical of him to use his decisions as a corrective I mean, where is the Constitution in this if he's correcting for the assault on justice? It's such a great question, Virginia, and I've been thinking all day about the collective action problem you've just identified. Yeah. You know, I mean, everybody is like, dude, McCabe, where were you a year and a half yes. ago? Jim Comey, why do you wait to write your bestseller? You know, why does Rex Tillerson wait until he's on a stage with Bob Schieffer to say, oh, by the way, the president always wanted to contravene the law? I mean, yeah. where were these people when they had moral authority within institutions, yeah. and why were they not standing up publicly? And Sally Yates obviously Early doesn't on. fit that model yeah. because she did stand up. Yes. But I think that there is exactly what you're saying, this massive collective action problem where everybody says, look, I'm going to just do my job, trust this institution, qua institution, yeah. and hope that something about the institution itself, right, stripped away from its players, corrects this presidency. And I think you're exactly right to say that that has really, I think, for John Roberts shifted. Yeah. Because yeah. I think that certainly if you read even his majority opinion in the travel ban case, right, which comes down in June, not that long ago, he's effectively saying, look, I'm not going to look at these tweets. I'm not going to try to read this guy's mind. I'm going to analyze this strictly looking at the institution of the executive branch mm -hmm. and make a decision about presidential prerogatives and national security that has nothing to do with Donald Trump. And you may remember Sonia Sotomayor in her dissent writes, Trump, 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 Trump. Like all she does is yes. the tweets. Yeah. And so I think there is this, I'm going to say the word ontological. I'm not sure that's the word, but there is this question roiling the justices about how much they step outside this perfectly crystal clear institutional role, which is we check the executive branch yeah. and start to participate in this conversation about this isn't a normal executive. Yeah. And when Congress chooses to treat it as though it is, we 
have these extra constitutional obligations that have nothing to do with just looking at straight up questions of separation of powers. I think you're right. That's amazing. And I think John Roberts is actually weirdly because he's now at the center of this 4-4 court. And I think he's weirdly embodying the entire institution's anxiety around that question. Wow. This must be something that he also kind of thinks about when he's flossing. Just seeing McCabe, you see him on TV and he looks so anguished. I've said many times on this show that James Comey's book is just a masterpiece of moral anguish, whatever you think about his decisions. And he was clouded in a lot of his decision making by a fog of war feeling like we all are. I may be alone in this, but I don't envy. And of course, I think, why didn't everyone behave like Walt Schaub and Sally Yates and stand up and get out and start working for the resistance outside of it like Hillary Clinton did? But I don't know that these people, many of them Republicans, could have anticipated that they'd ever have to deal with this constant insult to our brains, to our institutions. It just defies what they learned. I mean, is there a class in law school on what happens if the king is mad? I think not. And I keep wondering, where was the final in my contracts class called The Emperor Has No Clothes? Mm. Like, at what point do we get to just say, this is nuts? I think listening to you, a couple things, Virginia. In no particular order. I mean, one is, I think the longer you hang on and the more compromised you are, right? That's the answer to Sally Yates. That's the answer to Walt Schaub, right? Mm -hmm. The people who week one were just like, I'm out. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's easy for them. Folks who, and, and, you know, I actually put John Kelly in this class. I think I put McCabe in this class. That's compromised. Yeah, Yeah. people who, and probably Rod Rosenstein, right, Mm -hmm. who still has to answer for the Comey firing and Mm -hmm. has things to answer for. So I think there's a weird sense in which folks who linger then become complicit in actions that they may regret later, right? I think it's the Nikki Haley problem, too. It's certainly the Tillerson problem. And then you can certainly go off and get a CNN gig, or you can go off and write your tell-all book. But in some ways, you are complicit. And I think you're right. That's what makes these after the fact. Oh, Tillerson is now saying that Donald Trump was consistently lawless. Would have been good to know that yes, a year exactly. and a half ago. Although in some ways we did know this. That's the problem, is everything they say, we knew. Yeah, and we knew that the president posed a national security risk from during the campaign when he decided that the wall was the most important thing and a friendship with hostile foreign powers was also one of his goals. But now we learn from McCabe that... This Rosenstein wearing a wire, the proposed idea that seems to have been true that Rosenstein offered to wear a wire, that they discussed it and it was too soon for that. But they did consider it. Not too soon, right? It doesn't seem too soon now. And there were other things, too, like the 25th Amendment that were proposed and everyone said, it's not time for that. I mean, what do we know when it's time? It looked for all the world like it was time when he couldn't keep a thought together His speeches didn't track. He was saying hot-headed things that made him look, frankly, cognitively compromised. And then basically paying doctors or manipulating doctors to say that he's fine. I mean, come on! Like, if that was your dad, you would get him therapy. The best analog I have for this is, I think, when there's a mass shooting and everyone says, too soon, too soon, too soon, and then you blink and it's too late. Yes, yes. I think that we have this theoretical four picoseconds, nanoseconds, Mm. in which it's appropriate to act. And I guess we missed it because nobody tells us that it's come and gone. But I think that it's exactly true because I think once it's too late, then, as you said, people are compromised. They don't want to be outed. They don't want to be in the docks at Nuremberg, right? So they are going to either slink away in the night and say they knew nothing or they're going to make their best argument about why they were patriots. But I think that the notion of, and I think it does go back to this collective action problem, Mm -hmm. that some hero is going to say the thing that we didn't say when Donald Trump and Putin were talking and palling around at Helsinki. John Brennan said it was treason. Right. This is the thing that I worry about. I think we all are hoping that, like, a text is going to come that says, this is the thing. And it didn't come at Helsinki. It didn't come at that really bizarre Rose Garden announcement. We don't get the text. And I think that there is this... I class this as part of the huge national collective 
action problem that when Mueller does anything short of popping out of a cake Mm. with a glitter wand and, you know, an indictment or an indicted conspirator, something that is so obvious that we can all say, amen, this is it. We're just going to keep waiting for someone to act, for someone to say, Mm -hmm. this is it. And Mm -hmm. I think we have over two years normalized the sense Mm. that catastrophic things happen every day. Someone will let us know when we've crossed the line. And I just think, I, I think that I hope Mueller comes forth with that. But everything I know about Mueller... And everything I know about how he's operated to date, everything I know about the constraints on what he is investigating says to me, I don't know that the glitter wand is coming. I don't know that that's going to be that it's going to be that binary. And I don't know that folks who are sitting around saying when he activates, (laughs) you know, the DEFCON whatever emergency, then I will act. I don't know that those folks are going to be mollified by what they get. You've made such a strong case on this show and elsewhere that Mueller's not coming to save us, that we're waiting for Godot, and God's not around the corner in his no cufflinks and serious and good sheriff in town kind of thing, much less a magical fairy. On the other hand, I've proposed on the show, and I want to run it by you, I think Emmett T. Flood IV, this is Trump's defense attorney, who, to remind listeners, is defending the executive branch. He's a government employee defending the executive branch against, as Robert seems to be doing, against assaults from its current executive, maybe assaults from its current executive or anything that would compromise its integrity. So where Roberts is invested in the integrity of the court and its prestige and authority going forward, there has to be someone looking out for the executive branch. Because we don't want to just bomb the whole thing or have an internal coup like some of these people, maybe Kelly, have intimated that they're doing. We want an executive branch that's there for the next president. So you have Emmett T. Flood, whose background, and I say his name like that because his background is very similar to Robert Mueller's, except that he has an academic achievement, a Ph.D. in narrative theory, where Mueller has military service. But otherwise, they are very much men of the law who enforce the law together. And I think they are back-channeling for a soft landing. And my ideal soft landing is Flood counsels Trump to resign and Mueller who's very much got his eye on the Russians and knows about the dynamics of the Magnitsky Act, sanctions him to hell. Could be. I actually almost want to put the new attorney general, Bill Barr. In that equation. In that equation, because I think that as much as people are flipping out and saying, you know, oh, now Barr has taken over from the hack Whitaker and he's going to quash and silence this entire thing and we'll never hear anything. I think that one thing Barr is, in addition to being a longstanding friend and colleague of Robert Mueller, is somebody who gets the Justice Department. I would much rather have him at the helm if the institution of the Justice Department, qua Justice Department, is on the line than toilet salesman Matt Whitaker. And so I really (laughs) do think that... Whatever imperatives, and I think it's going to be very, very conflictual and difficult for Barr in all the ways it was for Sessions. But I do think the idea that if Mueller came out with some consequential smoking gun, would Barr be the guy to sit on it? I'm not sure that's the case, and I don't know the mechanics of what he might do. But I know that in much the same way that when Kelly resigns, right, Mm -hmm. when Tillerson resigns, we get these kind of tiny, like, SOS. And it comes out only on resignation. But I think that at some level, there are some class of actors, you know, separate from the totally craven Stephen Millers. There are some sets of actors in this system who are still in their own heads, patriots. And I think that's what you're tilting at. And I think that's actually where I put John Roberts. I think that he really, when the rubber hits the road, has maybe a broader aperture than just the idea that whatever else happens, I've got to make sure the census case goes the way Republicans want it. I think that there's something else afoot here. And I think you're right. I think in a strange way, the weariness that we're talking about in the citizenry, right? The electorate is just like, I don't freaking know what Mueller could do that would get me to 
pick up a you know yeah pick up, pick a, up a, a, a banner pick oh, up banner. a brick uh, you know I, I don't know what it would be but I think that institutionally and and again if I go back to John Roberts John Roberts waited for more than two years mm-hmm. after. Donald Trump was attacking Judge Curiel. Remember the Mexican judge yes. who was biased? Yes. John Roberts said nothing. He said nothing when Merrick Garland was slighted. Mm-hmm. He said nothing time after time during mm-hmm. the travel ban litigation when Donald Trump would call out Ninth Circuit judges and imperil their lives, by the way. I mean, these are people who had to have extra protective services. Yeah. And John Roberts, silent. Silent because he didn't want to get involved. And it really took until this fall... For John Roberts to finally say, dude, <laughs> stop. This, well, yeah, this is falling to me. Yeah. Let's talk about some other justices. One who you have written about recently is Neil Gorsuch and said that the California lawsuit against Trump's emergency wall written to appeal. Why was that written to appeal to Neil Gorsuch? Should a lawsuit have a particular justice in its sights? Oh, if it doesn't, we're in trouble. Uh, I, mean, I think that's a, a long standing for many, many years. Oh. Uh, lawsuits were just, you know, sealed with a bow with frosting that said, Audience Dear Anthony one. Kennedy, <laughs> please. I mean, that's it's it's a uh, it's in some in some of his sweet spots. Yeah. And explain that for for people like me who aren't special connoisseurs of each justice. First of all, Gorsuch has been at pains even before he came onto the court to write, and this was an article he wrote before he was elevated, saying the judicial branch should not be tasked with deciding things that are policy problems, that are political policy problems. And he made the point, I think very eloquently, at the time he was raging against progressives who were going to courts to effectuate the ends they wanted on gay marriage and on the environment and on affirmative action and on abortion. And his complaint was the courts are not the locus in which these things should be decided because, and he makes the good point, it polarizes the judges. It turns the judges into sort of parodies of political actors, and that's a mistake. So that's something he's certainly written. And then Mark Stern and I, when we analyzed the lawsuit that was filed by California and the other states, it really did look as though it was written to the Neil Gorsuch who has written so eloquently about separation of powers, about stripped-down constitutional questions, what is in the purview of the elected branches, what is in the purview of the courts. He's written about the presentment clause, which is something that nobody ever talks about but pops up, not just, by the way, in the state's litigation, but in the one that was filed by the ACLU, Mm -hmm. and which is just a question of if the president doesn't refuse to sign a bill, like, is it legitimate? And I think that there is a real part of Neil Gorsuch that is trying to erect meaningful boundaries Mm -hmm. in these separation of powers cases and really wants the work, the hard, thorny policy work to be wrangled out in the political branches. And as I said, even on the court, in his short time at the court, he's written about this. And if that Neil Gorsuch is going to respond to something in this pleading, it may be these arguments about you can call it an emergency, you cannot call it an emergency. Mm -hmm. We can litigate till the cows come home whether or not it's a pretext. The court doesn't want to get involved in questions of usurping presidential powers in a national emergency. But if you look at the just straight up constitutional question, Article 1, Section 9, Quote, no money will be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. Straight up Mm. question Mm -hmm. about the boundary between Congress and the president. It is entirely possible. And this suit is filed very, very shockingly, I would say, compared to the travel ban litigation. Mm -hmm. Absent talk of poor people and suffering and the dignity of, you know, all the stuff Mm -hmm. we heard in the travel ban about actual, like, have a heart, Justice Kennedy. Don't you care about the dignity of travelers? Don't you care about religious animus? This is pretty bare bones. This is Mm. just, dude, (laughs) this is not how it's done. And this is the thing that some Republicans have been saying, even straight up operatives, that Trump is setting a template that could be abused for something terrifying like LGBTQ rights or other things that upset them, which seems like a straight Republican argument for why to keep these powers separate, not grounded in politics. 
if that's another effort to preserve the integrity of the branches and the separation of powers, that's a bit of a relief. I would commend to people, I think some of the best writing on the national emergency stuff is from David French at the Mm -hmm. National Review Online, who's Mm -hmm. been writing as an absolute rock-ribbed Republican, that there is no set of facts under which this is constitutional and appropriate. Mm -hmm. And he's not writing from a place, actually not even writing that much from the place of oh, God, you know, because next President Harris is going to declare a national emergency, you know, around climate change. It's not even from that. It's just a purely descriptive, normative, this doesn't jibe with what the framers envisioned. It doesn't even jibe with what this one military appropriation statute that they're hooked into contemplates. I think that the less useful framing, Virginia, is the, like, if we let Trump do it, then we have to let Cory Booker do it. I think the framing (laughs) is the Constitution created at least some class of actions for which the president had to seek congressional approval. And this is, even if you go down back to the Youngstown steel case and the Supreme Court, you know, slapping back at Truman for trying to seize the steel mills, this really is a classic case where the president did not get what he wanted through budget and Mm -hmm. through appropriations. And he turned around and declared an emergency that wasn't an emergency the week before. He uses the precedent that he won the 2016 election, quotation marks on one, to make the case that his extremism, his impetuosity always works. And it is kind of amazing, not that he didn't learn from his advisors, but that he didn't learn from the poll numbers, that he didn't learn from the pushback, that after the longest shutdown in American history, that a national emergency was there's a kind of self-immolation in this. I mean, the next thing is don't make me shoot myself in the head, it seems like. Do you think the national emergency is finally the bridge too far? And why are people suddenly saying that he's weak? I don't know if you saw this article in New York Magazine. Why didn't we know all along that he was just weak? Corey Robin argues that everybody got terrified that he was Hitler. And the truth is, he's just a weakling and we never should have been so afraid. We should have seen his weakness. I'm not sure that that's true. And I think if he turns out to be, quote, weak, and I'm not sure what that would look like. He's wrought a lot of havoc. But if it turns out he's weak, there are going to be a lot of people following in this Corey Robin thing of everybody got Trump derangement syndrome and really he's just dumb and thin-skinned and we had nothing to worry about all along. The way that people pretended to have called it on the 2016 election, that bugs me, but I don't know. Do you think he is weak? Do you think he has been weak all along? I think I wrote a piece in November yeah. uh, even saying he's shrinking. That's so a, I don't disagree with Corey that he may not have been this immutable, massive, looming catastrophe that we all saw. But the fact is, he's still getting what he wants. He's still president. And if we use the language of, oh, he was weak all along, to absolve ourselves back to our, you know, pick up a banner, pick up a brick conversation. But if that becomes the way we give ourselves sucker and comfort, you know, oh, he's weak, so I don't have to do anything. The Mm -hmm. systems will take care of it. Then I really think we're signing on for, you know, six more years of this. In other words, I think it could be descriptively correct, although, again, Nixon was strong until the moment he was weak, right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I think that in the rearview mirror, you could say, oh, Nixon was weak all along. From the minute of the break-in, he was weak. No. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. What happened is the public reckoned with it at some point and congressional Republicans reckoned with it. And I think we are, are we at a moment where systems are reckoning? Mm -hmm. No, we're Mm -hmm. not. And so I think that to say he's weak is maybe factually correct. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to your 25th Amendment question. I mean, I think that it is demonstrably true that he's not a good or effective or competent president. But is he still getting what he wants an awful lot of the time? Why, yes. Are people still colluding with him to make it look as though he is effective and competent? Why, yes, they are. And so I just don't want to do anything that signals, America, you're off the hook. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I did a profile of Tina Fey, the comedian and writer and superstar, once, and she has enormous psychic power over the people she works with, including Lorne Michaels. She was head writer at SNL then. And I spent a long time trying to think why I was so worried about pleasing her and why almost everyone asked me, what does she think of me? And I realized, and I think Trump is this way too, which goes to his weakness, 
you're simultaneously afraid that she's going to hurt you because she did visit a lot of zingers on me and that you're going to hurt her because she burst into tears a couple times. So, like, is she weak because of the tears or is she just ego fragile and also powerful? And I think to the question of why do people cater to Trump, I think he has us coming and going on the like, are we going to hurt his feelings? You're being mean to me. You're being whatever. Or is he going to hurt us by bashing us like he always does? And I think Corey saying he's weak is partly falling for that side of him, the fragile side of him. It's not weakness. It's ego fragility. And speculating about his character, I know, is kind of boring. But we are talking about the 25th Amendment. And McCabe says that they talked about that when he was around and trying to bring the cabinet around to the 25th Amendment. So I think gauging and what our action should be, if he's weak, then what does that dictate that the voter do? I think it's important to have no sympathy for him. And it is bizarre to me that people who seem to get in the room with him often can't speak up. These alpha males that can't speak up until they're finally out of the room, Tina Turner style, and they get to write I, Tina, or whatever Rex Tillerson and James Comey can do. I don't know. I think he has us coming and going. And I think if we call him weak, we're falling into the crazy sympathy that sometimes you have for people with ego fragility. I wrote a piece about the Rose Garden speech. I talked about his kind of Piaget moral hierarchy of yes. how he thinks and the degree to which every comment is filtered through this lens of me, me, me. You know, yeah. I'm the most important person in the room. And then the people who love me are the next most important yes. in the room. And then the people who love the people who love me. And then the people who respect me. Like, it's really an amazing thing because... Yeah. Our three-year-olds at some point grew out of that stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote it not to be a jerk, although I think it was a little mean-spirited. But I, I wrote it to just, again, in the spirit of the emperor has no clothes, that we cannot. And I think this is a huge problem, right? We're talking about Comey, and we're talking about McCabe, and we're talking about Tillerson. But we as journalists, when we stand in the Rose Garden and we raise our hands and we ask questions as though this is a normal policy declaration, as though, you know, and when he says in answer to the question, there is no data, your own government's data shows that none of the things you're saying are true. And he says, I have secret stashes of data. Yes. And the answer to that is, I'm out, right? I can't. Yeah. I cannot do journalism under these conditions. Yes. And I think that part of what animated that piece, and it's animating my response to you, is as long as we in this enterprise of journalism are yeah. also colluding with the conventions yes. of this is normal, this is right— Someone's going to tell me when it's time yeah, to yeah. actually start setting myself on fire. I think that we're also part of the problem. Yeah. And I think it's a double-edged sword. And maybe it goes back to your interesting problem about, like, do you engage with that or not? But I think part of the problem is if the choice is to be in the resistance, right, and then to be accused of Trump derangement syndrome every time you say Emperor's still not wearing any clothes yeah. is to disserve journalism. Yes. But I think also to just continue to pretend that this is a normal president making a normal speech and this is a normal policy and there isn't something just utterly bizarre about him lying and saying Barack Obama did X, Y, Z when he didn't. Uh, we're also deserving the project of journalism. And it puts us in this kind of hellish double bind. Yeah. I thought more people would be setting themselves on fire by now. I thought people's immune systems would be so suppressed by these assaults on our institutions that a depression would come over the land, a, a Carter-era malaise where people would stop pushing back. And obviously, we had the midterms. And when you say the people are exhausted, well, they kind of are like, dude, I did my part in the midterms. And now I'm not totally sure whether to keep calling my representatives. I wonder if you have the same experience I do, which is virtually every time I give a speech to yeah. a crowd, I would say easily 80% of the people who come up after, not the formal Q&A, right? Yeah. The formal Q&A is like, how awesome is Justice Ginsburg? Yes. Really awesome. But the people who come up afterward, and some of them have tears in their eyes. I sound like Donald Trump now. Someone came up to me with tears in their <laughs> a eyes. A big guy. And he was yeah. huge, and yeah. I don't remember his name. But people who are really anguished. Yeah. And the question overwhelmingly is, what should I do? Tell me what to do. I get that 
so often. Mm -hmm. And I think that during the midterms when people could organize and knock on doors and make phone calls, there was at least some animating feeling of, okay, this is is the project. We're all going to do this. Yeah. And... I was just working on the chapter of my book this week about um, what I call the airport revolution, right? The first two days after the travel ban. And the most interesting thing to me is that was genuinely people just showing up. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Becca Heller and IRAP and the ACLU did a tremendous job rallying lawyers. The people who just went to the terminals at JFK and at SeaTac and at Dulles and stood there with signs and with food, and they were just people. And it was just people who saw stuff on Facebook and said, you know what, I'm going to just drive over there and be in that throng. Right, yeah. And I think... When I try to think of the template for something like that, and I think the Women's March in complicated ways is another version of that. But I think the human spirit wants normal and it leans toward normal Mm -hmm. in a way that, right, I could not parent my children and get up in the morning and like pay my bills if I couldn't at least for some chunks of the day say... This is what a normal person yes, would be doing. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that that impulse out there is, for all sorts of mental health reasons, really strong and good. Yes. Because I think if we were all depressed, if yeah. we were all setting ourselves on fire, it would not redound to anyone's benefit. Yeah. But I think that the countervailing impulse, which is, and it goes back to Mueller with the glitter stick yes. and the unicorn, like, as soon as Mueller tells me what to do— yes. I'm going to do it. That's when I will know. And I think, you know, and I listen, I mean, you know, I'm slavishly in love with Reverend Barber. I'm, you know, Mm -hmm. slavishly in love with uh, Walt Schaub and Mm -hmm. all the people who are organizing. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is this very, very inchoate sense that as long as I like click like on Facebook, yes, yes, you know, yes, as long yes. as I tweet some snotty, sassy response, yep. you know, to 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 the president, then it is in lieu of taking action. It's at least sort of morally and emotionally satisfying. But I think if I could generate the answer to what do I do and when do I do it, mm-hmm. I would be a much better journalist. I don't know the answer. Let's talk about the possibility Barr has predicted kind of jarringly that Mueller's findings, the findings of the Office of the Special Counsel, are going to be turned over to Congress in short order. And turning that over to a Democratic Congress that are representatives of the people seems like let a thousand hearings bloom. Elijah Cummings is another hero here. Elijah Cummings is my first 10. And then Adam Schiff and many other Democrats who've really made a point of their alliance on the one hand with the mission of the special counsel and then also their independent interests in things other than the purview of the special counsel. I think it's potentially good news for getting buy-in from the record number of people who voted for this Congress. I think I want to hold out the folks you've just named as such effective and powerful counterprogramming because whatever you're seeing there, it's not Trump derangement syndrome. No. In fact, some of them you would like to hear more volubly talk about impeachment uh, yeah. hearings and yeah. what what would happen if we found obstruction, you know, in the yeah. Nixonian sense. We did hear Swalwell say we're like several exits past obstruction, which I kind of like a friend of mine just said, because we've been watching the Bronco chase for a long time. And the exits, in any case, is potentially a good metaphor for that. But I agree that I'd like to hear impeachment talk higher in the mix, too. Again, it's a problem because I think that we say it's too early until it's too late. Yeah. And I think there have been at least five inflection points where we were like, huh, yeah, looks like obstruction. And I think at this point, you almost wonder what we're waiting to hear. Again, what Mueller is magically going to give us that's going to make us say, oh, well, that really, really looks like obstruction. But I, I guess the only thought was because we started from talking about, you know, John Roberts and how he is having to settle into this constitutional role that I don't think many chief justices, certainly in modern history, have had to think about, which is not just me as chief justice, you know, making sure that the lights are turned on and the power's turned on in the building and that people don't say too many crap things about the courts, you know, but 
actually, I now have to defend the integrity and the independence of the entire Article Three yeah. uh, judicial branch and how that's come slowly and it's been complicated for him. And he has zigged and zagged on that path. If we can say, you know, that these two votes in the last couple of weeks mean mean are of a piece uh, with that. I, I think that by the same token, it's important to see that what, you know, Adam Schiff and Cummings and Maxine Waters are trying to do is some version of that same sober, deliberative, constitutional, we are not taking rampant, crazed actions. We are not immediately launching into the, you know, most chaotic and reckless actions. We're just trying to amass facts. We're just trying to find out what's been obscured. And this will take the time it has to take. But I just think as a kind of counterpoint to the just totally reckless drama that we get out of the executive branch and maybe even as a counterpoint to the social media narrative, which is all AOC all the time and all, you know, who said what on Twitter and who clapped back at who. And I think that there's something to be said for modeling sobriety. A certain kind of proceduralism. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because you've named little handfuls of people, in one case, one person in the form of John Roberts, who in all the branches, well, I'm not totally sure that you're with me on the Emmett Flood thing, but let's just say people who seem to be thinking soberly, who are avoiding Twitter, some of those Congress people don't, but in any case, who are upholding the integrity of the branches. I think we hit them all, Justice Roberts looks like he may have now been invested in the integrity of the court over politics. Possibly Emmett Flood, who has a long-term investment and is quite an intellectual and has a long-term investment in the integrity of the executive branch. And now we have people in the legislature who are following procedure. And as much as you and I on the outside want to pick up a brick, it is nice to have that knot of people, Nancy Pelosi, whose name we left out, Adam Schiff, Elijah Cummings, Maxine Waters. You know, we're probably missing some in there, but parents. Synthetically, it's no surprise to me that there are people of color and women who are often the whistleblowers in these cases and who, while they may have had it up to here and Maxine Waters had another incarnation where she was much more voluble and now that they have a majority in the House has submitted more to this kind of proceduralism. And I see in those three different flames opportunities for us to drop the Mueller fantasy and get behind our taxpayer-funded people who are committed to the branches of government. I see that as a good thing. I do, too. But I would say this. One of the things I've come to realize is that Donald Trump is just a nihilist. And so if he doesn't care about the institution that is the court, he doesn't care about the institution that is the FBI, he doesn't care about the institution that is the Justice Department. I mean, he just doesn't care. And so if he sets it on fire and it's smoldering ashes, like, Mm -hmm. That's a good day. Yeah. It just doesn't matter. Yes, that's right. And I think that the folks in this, again, you can start with Sally Yates. You can start start with Jim Comey. Uh, I, I think you can, you know, there are many, many folks along the line who are fighting to front battles, right? Yes. They're trying to fend off whatever the daily assault, the daily insult, the daily massive discouragement to entire staffs who are just trying to come to work. Yep. But they're also really trying to protect the integrity of this institution. And if you think about it, you know, all of these folks who are having to fight one battle with one hand and another battle with another hand, yeah. it's incredibly, A, taxing and exhausting, but it means you're doing double the work. Yes. And I think that when I look at, you know, this question we have to ask ourselves about, you know, how much to engage with this, right? Everybody keeps saying, why are you reposting his tweets? Why are you covering Mm -hmm. his Rose Garden speech? You know, why are you feeding his ego? Because he's the commander-in-chief of the military. Because we have no option to ignore him. Yeah. But if we can simultaneously fend off calling the New York Times the enemy of the people, Mm -hmm. right, in any other time, we would be screaming. Yeah. That was just Wednesday. Yes. But if we can fend off that stuff and simultaneously protect and build up and really bolster institutions that have 
lost public confidence, courts included, FBI included. Fourth estate included. Yeah. And I think it's a really unfair thing to have this two-front war. But I also think that all the folks that you just name-checked, Virginia, all of the folks in the House, and I would say many, many of the people I admire so much in the Senate are doing the same. And judges, judges who have to hear Donald Trump get up and say the entire Ninth Circuit is crap. Mm-hmm. And they go to work the next day mm-hmm. and they, whatever's on their docket and they don't tweet back, they do nothing. All of these institutions that are trying to just shore up their own institutions, I think that the work there isn't trivial. And I think the fact that there are so many women and people of color Mm -hmm. and LGBTQ folks that are doing that work really goes to what I think is, and this is essentializing, but I'll say it anyway. I think that in a world in which everything is burnt down, those vulnerable groups will suffer the most. Yes, and that's why they got the early warning. And so they're fighting, and they're not just fighting Trump and Trumpism. They're fighting to also protect the rule of law Mm -hmm. and norms and all the sorts of things that we thought were really robust and are not robust because they're the groups, we are the groups, including the Fourth Estate, that will suffer if anarchy is allowed to just free range over everything. The Dahlia who two years ago said the institutions will save us is much more sober today than she was. But I also, I think this is where I would tell you that when folks come up to me after public appearances and say, what can I do? My incredibly pedestrian, not exciting answer is Fight for institutions. Fight for the judges who are deciding the border cases, the the family separation cases who get shellacked and nobody stands up for them. Fight for the judges on the Ninth Circuit who, by the way, are not all of a mind of of, on any one thing. You know, fight for journalism and journalists. Mm -hmm. If that means paying for them, please do. (laughs) But I think that it really is not going to be as much as we wish it could just be like have Twitter fights about Bernie versus AOC. Yes. I don't think that's the thing that's going to save us. I think what's going to save us is doing the incredibly mind-numbing work of writing the op-ed to the paper and saying, you know what, when Donald Trump attacks an entire federal judicial circuit, like that's an attack on the rule of law. It's very interesting to see how you align with institutions. And our younger brothers and sisters who maybe are Bernie supporters, they don't have great faith in institutions and see like the socialists of my childhood, both parties as part of the war machine and corporate shills. And I've come around to thinking there's a place for that voice and for the people sort of sniping on the sidelines. I maybe don't totally agree that this clapbacks and the Twitter stuff is trivial. One of, I think, the lessons of Russia, which we've had to study closely since our president is so close to Russia and Putin, is that the leader, like CEOs past, is always terrified about a rebellion from the people and is always trying to suppress the truth that he's one person and that in Russia, at least, The people are known to rise up, and it is Putin's greatest fear. I think that's why we see Trump exaggerating the size of his crowds, just phenomenally exaggerating them, because the terror that he's hated by, quote, his people, that he's hated by the people who can throw him out in a democracy or who could, in some id part of his brain, storm the White House, like Adam Paramenko and the other people at the Kremlin Annex. And when you see someone a little bit wild-eyed like AOC coming for these people, that is destabilizing for him. I remember on election day when he voted, I don't know if you remember this, but someone came up to him and just said, you know, if I remember it was an African-American guy and he came up and said, New York hates you, Donald Trump. And in the Women's March, France hates you, Donald Trump. And I, if I ever saw him, would say, America hates you, Donald Trump. I think that that is a powerful lesson for the autocrat. And I want to be super clear that no part of me is saying that AOC, what she's doing is trivial. I actually think she, maybe more than almost anyone except Ruth Bader Ginsburg, shores up this point I'm trying to make, which is if AOC is anything, I think she's an institutionalist. Yes. If RBG is anything, holy hell, is she an institutionalist. Yes. And I think that when we 
caricature them as untethered from institutions. It's mm-hmm. it's easier. It's comfortable. There's a way in which I think it maps really nicely onto stories about self-made women mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the great American hero. But I've been watching Justice Ginsburg for 20-whatever-one years that I've been covering the court. My God, she is the most institutional. Even when she's crazy mad, <laughs> she writes appointed dissent in Hobby Lobby. Yes. But her best friends at the D.C. Circuit Court are Antonin Scalia and Robert Bork, right? <laughs> yes. Like, this is not a person who's about burning everything down. Yeah. And I I don't want to sound naive, and I really take your point that there is something about mass movement and mass mobilization that doesn't fit into any institutional box that you and I are talking yeah. about. But I also want to be really clear that I think we sometimes disserve some of our heroes by trying to portray them as actors who are completely unmoored from the institutions that they come up in. And I interviewed Maisie Hirono a few months ago, and she told me, and this blew my mind, right? She, like, every time she goes on TV, she's, like, swearing away, and she's, you know, calling out sexual predators, and she's calling out the president. And she told me that she's actually had, like, more bills signed by the president than almost anyone because she finds a Republican ally in the Senate, and she works the system. And I just think we have to be a little bit mindful of the ways in which this is a team sport and that institutions, again, I I don't want to come off sounding like I'm saying institutions are magic and they will save us. I don't believe that. I think that, right, sometimes you use the the tools of the master's house to, like, take the freaking thing down. And I understand that. But I think that if we are talking about vulnerable communities, the thing that has protected Historically, in this country, women and minorities and LGBTQ and handicapped in the environment and communities that don't have the ability or the money to buy institutions, it's the institutions themselves. And I think we should just be mindful of the ways in which if we had to start from scratch tomorrow, (laughs) women would not be running the show. My guest today has been Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia writes the Supreme Court Dispatches and Jurisprudence columns at Slate and hosts the bi-weekly podcast, Amicus. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. And that's it for today's show. Tell us what you think of it. We really do listen. I'm Page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And before I go, have you signed up for Slate Plus yet? You'll get all of Slate's podcasts. That's Trumpcast, of course, but also Amicus Dahlia's show, ad-free. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash trumpcast. Plus, our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacobs. And our musical interlude today was supplied by the maestro bassist Dan Asher. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.